Around Christmas time, joy and peace are things that are often talked about and sung about. The songs we sang tonight emphasize those kinds of things. Uh, one hymn that you may be familiar with uh, about the, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet their words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's a common idea at Christmas, peace on earth. And yet, the reality is, is not only during Christmas, but the rest of the year, there really is little joy and peace on earth. There are countries that are fighting with each other. There are families that are broken. There's conflicts that you might have at work between employees or with your employer. You might have a former friend that never talks to you anymore. You may have had the experience at a family Christmas gathering that when one family member comes in to the room, the other one leaves the room because they can't get along with each other. And so we talk about things like peace and joy. And yet, for many, this is not a time of peace and joy. This is a time of bitterness. You may have experienced the loss of, of a loved one or know of family members or friends that are battling with serious illnesses and suffering. But the reality is that that hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, was not written from someone who was in the midst of joy and peace. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, in 1860, had been widowed when his wife died in a fire in their house, leaving him a widowed father of five. And then a couple of years later, his oldest son ran off to join the Union Army. And in December 1st of 1863, he found out that his son Charles had been shot and nearly paralyzed and likely would never be the same. And so he went to to go visit with his son. And that Christmas, after he heard the news about his son and, and saw the condition he was in, he was walking around on Christmas Day hearing the carols, hearing the bells playing, and ended up pinning that hymn. Now, We usually sing about four stanzas of that hymn. There's a couple that aren't in most of our hymnals, and that's in part because they're not that happy. Uh, He talks in one stanza about how canons are really drowning out all these carols, and that as if there's an earthquake that's actually renting the continent in two. Now, one stanza that we do often sing is where he then says after that, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Why is there so little joy and peace on earth? I want to look at a passage this evening that's also written in the midst of war. Longfellow wrote that hymn in the midst of the Civil War. The passage we're going to look at is written in the midst of military conflict. The passage is found in Isaiah chapter 9. If you would take your Bibles, open up to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9 opens with the words, there will be no more gloom. Now, why does it say, but there will be no more gloom? Well, because of how chapter 8 actually ends. Go back up to verse 22 of chapter 8. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Isaiah is talking about an upcoming battle, the fact that that really the, the northern kingdom was going to be overrun 
The Assyrian army was going to be coming in and they would be wiping out the northern kingdom. And yet, in verse 1, we find this promise. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. There was a gloom of anguish that's coming on them. But one day, that will be gone. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. And this was the area that was one of the first areas taken over by the Assyrian army. Even before the whole kingdom fell, this northern part of the kingdom was already humbled, was already come over. And in fact, it it became uh, so overrun by other areas that eventually it became known as a Galilee of the Gentiles, as is described here. He says, uh, later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That so many oppressors had come into this place. It was as if it was no longer part of the Jewish nation. It was now Galilee of the Gentiles. And yet, in this place of darkness, in this place of gloom, in this place of anguish, God is making a promise that one day there will be no more gloom. That on this very on these people, in this place that first experienced turmoil, there would be coming a light in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. I mentioned, we often look around and we feel as if there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of gloom. There's a lot of anguish. Certainly in Isaiah's day, the people looking around would say, it seems really dark. There is gloom and anguish. And yet, God says one day there will be a light. God is the one who shines this light. The light will shine on them. They can't create it themselves. They can't bring about this light. God is going to bring about this light. And the result is going to be incredible joy. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Because there will be an increase of people, an increase of possessions, an increase of harvest, the opposite of what they were currently experiencing. That instead of the nation shrinking and them wondering, how are we going to get our food? Instead, there's going to be an increase of these things that will result in joy. Why? Verse 4. Because there will be deliverance from oppression. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. That at this time, they were facing oppression. They were facing the yoke. And he references a similar time in Israel's history. When Gideon was around and the Midianites were coming in. If you remember the story of Gideon, the oppression was so great that Gideon was hiding in his basement trying to to winnow out his harvest so that people wouldn't come and take it away from him. And God says, I will break the yoke of the oppressor just like I did then. And how did he do that under Gideon? Well, you remember the story of Gideon. Gideon got a lot of people together to fight. And what happened? God said, there's too many. They kept winnowing down the people more and more until they ended up with 300 people to go against thousands of people. And then they went out 
with lanterns in pitchers. And what happened? They won the battle because God caused the Midianites to be confused and they started fighting each other. And so God broke the oppression of his people through his act of deliverance. And he said, I'm going to do that again. I will deliver you from oppression, but it's going to be even better than the days of Midian. Verse 5. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. You're getting rid of it. You're burning it. You don't need these things anymore. What do you not need? You don't need your battle boots. You don't need your armor. Similar to to what Isaiah said earlier already, where he he talks about beating your swords into plows, shears. And that is, if you don't even need your boots and your, your, your cloaks, you don't need anything for battle anymore. That war is going to be completely done away with. Now, if you're there in Israel at that day, you're looking around and you're seeing strong armies that are coming against you. And God's saying there's going to come a time in which all war is going to be done. And even now, we look around in our world and we think, how could that ever happen? How could all oppression be gone? How could all wars be stopped? And the answer is given in verse 6. For or because a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now, I don't know for sure that Isaiah was trying to indicate this in his language, but but certainly the the way that it's phrased matches up very well with what we actually know happened. That there is a child born, but a son, in a sense, isn't really born because the son already existed. The son is the second person of the Trinity who would be given to us. And yet, as we read that verse, if you're like me, and I would think even in Isaiah's day, they might look at that and say, a child? I mean, we're facing a massive army, and you're telling me, hey, good news. There's a baby that's going to be born. I think I was hoping for something a little bit bigger. Maybe some tanks or something. How is it that a child being born is going to be a help for us? And yet in in that promise, I think we, we see a couple of things about how God tends to work. That God tends to bring about his salvation in ways that are counter to how we tend to think. And he already kind of primed us in that way in talking about Midian. Because what did Gideon think he needed in order to fight this army? A big army. What did he need? Just what God gave him. That God demonstrates his strength in ways that are counter to how we tend to think about strength. That his wisdom is counter to often how we tend to think about wisdom. That God chooses the weak things and the foolish things of this world to overcome the powerful. And so he will overcome these things through a child. And yet we also see that God's 
workings don't often happen quickly. Because if a child's born, the assumption is maybe someday this will make a difference. And so at best you're thinking, I mean, by the time the child's actually able to do anything, it's going to be several years. We understand that actually it was going to be 700 years before this child was even going to be born. And even as we look at the rest of the passage, we're going to find out there's several things. Actually, most of the things in this passage still haven't even been accomplished 2,000 years after that. And so God not only works in ways that you don't expect, but he does not work on a timetable that we tend to think about. And yet, this child that's born will be the reason why oppression is done away with and war is ended. Why? Because this child is born to us. And this son is given to us. It is for our benefit. And what will happen? Well, the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be the ruler. He will be the one to govern God's people. Particularly here to govern the nation of Israel. And then we find a description of his character. When he says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's not saying name as if, like, you name your child that. That's not the name that goes on the birth certificate. That this name is the idea of this is what he will be like. This is his description. This is what his character is like. And there are four, in a sense, names used to describe what this ruler will be like. And I think it's important to remember it's four, uh, because if you're familiar with this passage, we might tend to think there's five. In part because the, the King James divided it up, but also there's a very famous song uh, in, in Handel's Messiah where it says, For unto us a child is born, and his name shall be called Wonderful, stop a bit, Counselor, stop a bit, the Mighty God. And so we might think, oh, it's Wonderful, and then Counselor. But, but really, as most translations today recognize, it's meant to be together those first two, Wonderful Counselor. What does it mean to say this child will be a wonderful counselor? Well, wonderful really is language that's used to describe things beyond human ability and comprehension. Full of wonder. And later on, Isaiah is going to describe God as the one who has this kind of counsel. Go go to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28. In verse 29, Isaiah 28, 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. That God is the one who has wonderful counsel. And and if you think about this as as a king, we understand that, that kings need counselors. We see this even in the history of Israel. That we see David and Ahithophel talking about someone who, whose counsel is almost as if it's the word of God. Someone who, who provides great counsel. Or Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who, who actually goes to his father's counselors and gets good advice, but then goes to his own counselors and gets bad advice. And we see how important it is to have good counselors in place so that a king can make wise decisions. And for this ruler, he's not going to need any counselors because he himself is the wonderful counselor. 
He has the kind of wisdom and insight so that he knows exactly what he needs to do. When we look at our rulers and our leaders, if you're like me, you often think, man, what are they thinking? I I, I want to be careful because I do think, want to show respect to those who are in leadership. But I remember someone one time pointing out, you know, before we begin to, to immediately jump to the idea that those in leadership are corrupt and, and, and constantly like working behind the scenes in, in, in nefarious ways, we might want to consider the fact that we're actually ruled by a group of idiots. That often they don't know really what they're doing. They're not, they're not competent enough even to pull off these kinds of things. And yet, this ruler will be one, as we look at the kind of decisions he makes, we will say, what wisdom. It is wonderful. And, and kings as well, rulers as well, were also involved in giving guidance to those under them. Think about Solomon, who had to deal with a dispute, the dispute between the, the two women who both claimed to be the mother of a child. And the kings would also provide counsel to their people. And, and this ruler will also be able to provide wonderful counsel for his people. We live in a day in which people are struggling with the question of what should I do? I remember looking at a study a few years ago that said that the, the position in universities that is increasing more than anything else is counselors. Universities are filling up with counselors because students are, are struggling with what should I do? How should I act? I need help. I need guidance. And this child is the one who can provide wonderful counsel, incredible guidance for his people. Secondly, he's described as the mighty God. Go over to chapter 10 and verse 20. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord. And, and you'll probably in your translation, you'll see the Lord there is in all capitals. And that's because that's Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. They will rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And so when Isaiah here says this child that's going to be born is going to be the mighty God, he is saying something incredible. It's it's a human, and yet, at the same time, this human is in some way God. The eternal God in human form. And here the emphasis is on his power. That he is a mighty warrior, a hero. And in our day, just like we love counselors, we really love heroes. Because it seems as if almost every movie that's coming out now is about some kind of superhero. And yet all the superheroes that we see in our day have some type of flaw. There's some type of weakness. And this has always been true. Even Superman. You're like, no one can be Superman. Well, except for if you have like a bit of kryptonite. Then he becomes really weak. Or even in Greek mythology, Achilles. And yet his heel was vulnerable. 
that all the heroes that we see in our day, at some point, there's some weakness, there's something they aren't able to do. But this ruler will be the mighty God. And he will have no weaknesses and no flaws. And so he will be able to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. So we look and say, how would war and oppression end? Will end because this ruler will be the mighty God. Third, he will be the eternal father. Now, when you see father here, you shouldn't get confused and think, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about Jesus and Jesus is the son. He is the son. Isaiah here isn't talking about the, the Godhead as relating to each other in the Trinity. That there's one of two ways to understand this. One is to, to, that he's talking about the father of eternities, the one who oversees time. I think more likely it is better to see it as eternal father and father here as a reference to a, a leader who leads his people as a father does, who cares for his people as a father does. And again, we we look at those who are in leadership, those who rule in our day, and so often we think they're just looking out for themselves. They might say, I'm fighting for you, but really, they want us to fight for them. And what we really want is we want a leader who would look at us and care for us and sacrificially love us as a father would his children. To have our best interest at heart, and that's what this ruler will be like. He will be a father. And if you ever get a leader like that, you're like, man, I wish he could be here forever. And this ruler will be there forever because he is the eternal father. Think about it in history. Oh, king, live forever. This one will. His rule will never end so that he will always be there to care for his people. And finally, he is the prince of peace. He is the, the prince, the ruler, who will bring about peace. And this is not just the absence of war. This is shalom, wholeness, completeness, life as it is meant to be. And there's, there's a longing in us that says this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We want things to be made right. Some of you may have heard the song this Christmas, my grown-up Christmas wish. If you're familiar with that, what, what, what is the actual grown-up Christmas wish? Well, this is it. No more lives torn apart. That wars would never start and time would heal all hearts. Every man would have a friend. That right would always win and love would never end. Wouldn't that be great? Well, one day it will be true. One day there will be a chief and a ruler who brings this about. And the reason we don't have that now is because of us. That because we in our pride, we in our stubbornness, we in our selfishness are not fully following God. And our sin separates us from God. And because we are separated from God, we then have strife and alienation from one another. 
And so there are wars and conflicts among us because we long for things that we should not long for. And we don't have our sinful desires fulfilled and therefore we war with one another. But Jesus Christ came to deal with our sin. And through his death, he conquered sin. And when he lived on earth, you could almost get a glimpse of what this rule would be like. As he went around healing sickness and disease, creating food from nothing to satisfy hungry people, bringing dead people back to life, and saying, what kind of place would it be if there was no hunger, no sickness, no death? And the answer is, that will be the the kind of world that we live in when Jesus is the ruler. And yet even now, we can experience a taste of this peace. Because when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ, we now can have peace with God. We can now have eternal, abundant life. And we can look forward to the day when there will be peace throughout this world. In that hymn, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, the final stanza you're probably familiar with. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead. Nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. And I, I don't think Longfellow actually understood how that would come about. If you look at what he believed, I don't think he really understood who Jesus was. And yet, he was speaking better than he knew. Because that is biblical truth. One day, there will be peace on earth. And this will happen through the child's rule in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And no end, I think, primarily is saying geographically. Every other country, every other empire, you could draw a boundary around it. They possessed this land, and then it ended. But for his rule, there will be no end. It will be a worldwide empire, a worldwide kingdom. And because his rule extends throughout the world, his peace extends throughout the world. And he will do this on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will be the one to fulfill the promises that God has made to the nation of Israel. That there will be a Davidic king who rules over his kingdom. And he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. How often do kings get into power and then they stay in power through corruption and through deceit and through selfish ends? But this king will uphold his rule with righteousness and with justice from then on and forevermore. And again, we see that that this can't just be a regular king. Because every other king's rule ends. But this king's rule will go on forever. And how will this be accomplished? The final phrase in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
God's zeal is his energy invested in his people. And because God has this intense concern for his children, he is going to step in and right all wrongs. He is going to make sure this happens. Because we can't. There's nothing we can do to bring about peace on earth. But God will make sure it happens. You may remember the song that our choir has sung a couple of different times. Is he worthy? Begins with this. You feel the world is broken? We do. And do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from shining through? Yes, we do. Because those who are in gloom and anguish, a light will shine upon them. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.